Please turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Genesis 42. As we make our way through the story of Joseph, we come this morning to Genesis 42. Let me read this for us. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As truly as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they each turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we are honest men, we are not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. 
Then the man who is lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak through it to us this morning. Pray that we would have open ears and open hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have been going through the life of Joseph this summer, one of the overarching themes that we have discovered is the providence of God. God has demonstrated his sovereignty over Joseph's life at every point, at every chapter of his life. Uh, that's one overarching theme. And this morning we discover another theme that uh, is a major theme of this story, and that is reconciliation. Remind you, at the beginning of this story, when we picked it up, Joseph was together with his family. And then the, the, the uh, conflicts blow the family up. Joseph is sold off into slavery, and this family is broken and fractured. But by the end of Genesis, Joseph and his family are reunited and reconciled. And you say, how does that happen? Well, Genesis 42 shows us the road to reconciliation. Ernest uh, Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World, which follows Paco, a young man in Spain who dreams of becoming a matador. But Paco has an estranged relationship, relationship with his father, whom he has wronged, and from whom he has run away to Madrid. The father searches all over Madrid for his son, but cannot find him. And so in a desperate last-ditch effort to find his son, the father places an ad in the daily newspaper in Madrid, which reads this. Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. Father prays that his son will see the ad and show up. And that Tuesday, the father makes his way to, to Hotel Montana at noon and cannot believe his eyes. There are 800 young boys named Paco, common name in Spain, who read the ad and showed up thinking that the ad was for them. They all came hoping to be forgiven by their father. My friends, we live in a community full of broken and estranged relationships. Maybe you're sitting here and you have a broken relationship with a mother or a father, and if you got a note that said all is forgiven, you would also show up. Maybe you have a broken relationship with a family member, an adult child, a friend. Perhaps it's even someone in our church family. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, go first and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Broken relationships, in other words, are, are nothing new. What I think is new is the problems we face in finding 
relationships and friendships because our culture has less and less resources to deal with broken relationships. We live in a culture of outrage now where the slightest offense, the least injustice merits outrage and anger. And of course, this has resulted in what's been called cancel culture. There is now in our culture no more room for forgiveness or redemption. No more room for reconciliation or second chances. There's only outrage and judgment, which then leads to endless cycles of retaliation and vengeance. In the wake of this cancel outrage culture, there are irreparably broken relationships and fragmented culture, broken communities. I wonder if it's uh, contributed to our mental health crisis. Because my friends, we're made for community and yet we have less and less of it. We are more and more isolated. To rebuild our community, we need to learn how to reconcile broken relationships. And Genesis 42 shows us the road to reconciliation. Genesis 42 shows us how God leads his people on the road to reconciliation. And as we consider this topic, I want to break it down into three things that Genesis 42 shows us. The need for reconciliation. Secondly, the opportunity for reconciliation. And lastly, the beginning of reconciliation. What are the seeds? So the need, the opportunity, and the beginning of reconciliation. First, the need for reconciliation. Point your attention to how this account begins, verses 1 and 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. We might be able to paraphrase a narrator by saying, uh, what are you waiting for? Go get us some food, you lazy bums. That's, a, that's the essence of, of this opening. We're introduced to the two major plot lines in Joseph's story. There's a physical threat, starvation. Jacob and his family are in danger of, of dying of starvation. And then there's a spiritual threat. In their family brokenness, they're in danger of falling apart as a family. And at the beginning of chapter 42, we catch a glimpse of a broken family. Simeon and Levi are guilty of killing every male Shechemite in an act of singular revenge in Genesis 34. Reuben consists, uh, commits incest with his father's concubine as an effort to try and usurp his father's authority in Genesis 35. All ten brothers beat Joseph up, throw him into a cistern, plan to kill him, but then at the last minute sell him off into slavery to Egypt in Genesis 37. Judah unwittingly impregnates his own daughter-in-law who has disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute in Genesis 38. Father Jacob is still playing favorites. Verse 3. Then ten of, of Joseph, Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. In other words, Benjamin is now his new favorite. The other ten brothers are exp expendable, essentially. That's what he's saying. In every chapter of this story, there's brokenness in this family. It would take a counselor a long time to unwind and sort out all the family issues in this family. My friends, that's why we need reconciliation. See, we don't need reconciliation if there aren't broken relationships. It's because there are broken relationships in this world that we need reconciliation. 
Broken relationships are one of the effects of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their relationship with God was broken vertically. Their, their, their relationship with themselves and their hearts was broken. They began to struggle with guilt and shame. And their relationships with each other were broken. They began blame shifting and accusing each other. And, and there was distance in the marriage. It's evidence that we live in a fallen world. Maybe the best evidence of, of that we live in a fallen world is, is look at our relationships. Look at your relationships. I look at my relationships. We're all longing for a perfect relationship and we can't find it. Because we can't find a perfect friend. And we can't be a perfect friend. We can't find that perfect spouse and we can't be that perfect spouse because we live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen creatures, we have broken relationships. Which is why we need reconciliation. In the New Yorker last year, there was a profile on the writer Wendell Berry. If you know Wendell Berry, he lives in a small town, and at one point in the profile, he talks about what holds a small town together. War, he suggests, begins in a failure of acceptance. He writes of exchanging friendly talk with Trump voters at Port Royal's farm supply store, a kind of tolerance, he says, that is necessary in a small town. Here's what he says. If two neighbors know that they may seriously disagree, but that either of them, given even a small change of circumstances, may desperately need the other, should they not keep between them a sort of prepaid forgiveness? They ought to keep it ready on hand like a fire extinguisher. Because without this, we risk conflagration, he says. A society with an absurdly attenuated sense of sin starts talking then of civil war or holy war. You know, it's interesting. We keep fire extinguishers in, in buildings, right? Because there's a, a risk of fire. What do we keep on hand when there's a risk of broken relationships? Conflagration and conflicts in community. So I would suggest our culture doesn't have many resources right now, and that's why there's so much fragmentation and division in our, in our communities, in our culture. Genesis 42 shows us that the, the resources that Christianity provides, a, a, a sort of prepaid forgiveness, reconciliation. We need reconciliation. That's the first thing this passage shows us. Secondly, the opportunity for reconciliation. Joseph and his brothers obviously badly need reconciliation, but there is no human way for it to happen. Because Joseph's living in Egypt, hundreds of miles away from his siblings who live in Canaan. That's a long way in the ancient world. It's interesting, Joseph makes no efforts to contact his family. When he writes, like, he's in prison, he can't. But when he rises to power, he makes no efforts to contact his family. It's interesting. His brothers and his dad consider him all but dead. Never in their wildest dreams do Joseph's brothers think they will ever see Joseph again. I mean, there's no human way, seemingly, for this reconciliation to take place. But where there's no human way, God makes a way. God in his providence makes a way to save this family physically and spiritually. But he uses surprising means. Three times in this narrative we're told that God sent Joseph to Egypt in a surprising way, through an act of injustice, through his brothers selling him off into slavery. That's how God uh, got Joseph to Egypt and sent him there. 
And then God sends dreams to the Pharaoh to tell him that a famine is coming. And then he gives Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams so that Joseph can rise to power, this position from which he can save his family. And then of all things, God sends a famine into the land to force Joseph's brothers to go to Egypt. They would never would have gone to Egypt otherwise. He sends a famine to force his brothers to go to Egypt. In other words, God uses suffering in the lives of his people to accomplish good. God works through injustice and dreams and famine, orchestrating all these things to bring this family together. So that when Joseph's brothers happen, quote-unquote, to meet Joseph 20 years after selling him off into slavery, they don't, they don't even recognize him. I mean, Joseph is now in his 30s. Last time they saw him, he was 17. He was a teenager. Uh, Joseph has assimilated into Egyptian culture, so he's fully shaven. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. They don't even recognize him. But let me tell you, it's not a chance meeting. It's not a coincidence that these brothers are back together. God is always working for reconciliation among his people. His providence is at work bringing his people together. I experienced God's providence in relationships recently. Uh, when we were in Hawaii um, back in April, one of the fun things that we did that was completely unexpected is we went to see the University of Hawaii men's volleyball team play. The, they were the number one team in the country uh, last year, and we never would have thought to do this. But when we were in Hawaii, I posted on social media that we're in Hawaii, and a, a college friend whom I haven't seen for 30 years saw the post and said, where are you? And I, I told her where I was, and she said, oh, I live five minutes away from where you are. And we ended up getting together after 30 years and catching up, and I met her husband. And she said, if you're not doing anything Friday night, you should come with us to go see the University of Hawaii men's volleyball team play. And it be, ended up being a highlight of our vacation. Recently, another college friend, whom I have not seen or talked to for 30 years, was up in this area for his mom's memorial service. And we have a mutual friend that we didn't know was a mutual friend, and he said hello, he said hello uh, through this mutual friend, and I found out that he teaches at the University of Memphis. And lo and behold, I'm going to Memphis for General Assembly this year, um, and I've never been to Memphis before, and so we were able to have lunch and reconnect after 30 years. And I ask you, are these meetings coincidence? Are these meetings by chance? Well, if there is no God, then yes. If there is no God, then these are, these are random, random happy meetings. They're, they're great, but they're, they're chance. But if there's no God, then all of life is chance. If there's no God, there is really no ultimate meaning in our lives. Friendships ultimately don't have meaning if there, there's no God and we're just here for a blip in time. Love is just a biochemical response that we like. But that's all it is if there's no God, if we're just biological creatures, and that's it. Franz Kafka's book, The Trial, in that book, a man is arrested by a faceless bureaucracy for a crime that is never named. And the main character protests. What is the purpose of this enormous organization? How are we to avoid those in office becoming deeply corrupt when everything is devoid of meaning? See, if there is no God, that's, that's what it's like. It's this enormous, faceless bureaucracy. We feel this guilt for things that we don't even know are, 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 are wrong. If there is no God, there is no ultimate meaning in life. But of course we can't live that way. 
And so if we don't believe there, there's a God, we make up our own meaning. That's what we're told. You know, you can make up your own reality. Make up your own meaning. But Terry Eagleton, a professor of English literature at Lancaster University in England, points out the difficulty and challenges of doing this. See, making up our own meaning can only take us so far. For example, if you try to make up your own meaning with a tiger and tell yourself and others that it's really a cute and cuddly animal, you will not live long enough to tell your story. Reality with a capital R will break in on you. See, the life of Joseph is an invitation into a world where there is a God who is writing a story in our lives such that by his providence, he is leading us on the road to redemption and reconciliation with him and with others. And you see, if that's true, it does two things. If there is a God who is writing a story in our lives, it invests moral meaning into our lives. You see, every moment has divine purpose and meaning. You may not always recognize or grasp what that is, but if there is a God who is writing a story in your life, every moment has divine meaning and purpose. And then there's hope. If you're only partway down the road of redemption and reconciliation, and you're not there yet, and there's still broken relationships, there's hope. Because God is writing a story. And the last chapter has not been written yet. God brings us opportunities for reconciliation. So then thirdly, what does it look like? What does the beginning of reconciliation look like? Let's consider this together. When Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt and unknowingly meet Joseph, Genesis 42 describes for us the beginning of reconciliation, the seeds that are planted for reconciliation. They are repentance on the part of the offender, or offenders, the brothers in this case, repentance on their part, and forgiveness on the part of the offended, that is Joseph. And you look at Genesis 42 and you say, I'm not, you know, that's a head scratcher. I'm not sure I see those two things in this chapter. And I would suggest to you that they're in seed form. So let me point them out. Let's look at the re repentance of the brothers. Their change of heart begins in verses 21 and 22. After Joseph throws them into prison for three days, they say to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. See, what's going on here? I would suggest to you that the brothers are admitting their wrongdoing. They're admitting the dastardly act they did. We, he was pleading. He was pleading with us from, from the cistern, and we didn't even listen. We were cold-hearted. Reuben says, you, I told you not to sin against the, the boy. I mean, they recognized that, that was wrong. This is sin. Moreover, they own up to what they do. They don't blame shift. They don't say, well, Joseph really had it coming to him. He shouldn't have done the things he did. He shouldn't have been that kind of person. He had it coming. They don't say that. They take responsibility. They say, we're guilty, and maybe this is why this is happening. This is why we're facing the consequences. They're owning up to what they've done. And then they recognize that the offense is fundamentally against God. You see, it's dawning on them that they live in a moral universe with God as judge, and God disciplines his people. He, he deals with them for their sins. Verse 28, they say, what is this that God has done to us? 
that they recognize that there is a vertical dimension to this family problem. That the, 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 the fundamental offense is against God. Yes, it's against Joseph, but fundamentally it's a sin against God. And my friends, I would suggest to you that this is the beginning of repentance. Here's what repentance is. It's admitting wrong and sin. Recognizing that what you've done is clearly wrong. And it's owning up to our sin. Not blame shifting and say it's their fault. If they didn't do that, I would have done what I did. It's not blame shifting. It's not rationalizing. You don't know, you don't know who they are. You don't know who I'm dealing with. It's not rationalizing. It's not blame shifting. It's not soft peddling. What I did was, was wrong, but it wasn't, wasn't that bad. If you're blame shifting and rationalizing and soft peddling, it's not, it's not repentance. See, to throw a log, you've got to take it fully on. If you only take up half the log, you can't throw it. To throw sin, you've got to take it fully on. You've got to own up. And then you've got to recognize that sin is first and foremost against God. Remember when David sinned against Bathsheba and he was repenting finally in Psalm 51. He said to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is wrong in your sight. And he said, wait a second. David, didn't you sin against Bathsheba and you sinned against her husband? Of course, David would say. But what he's saying in Psalm 51 is first and foremost. My sin is against God, and he recognizes that. I think the brothers here are beginning to repent, and their repentance is opening the door to reconciliation because without genuine repentance, reconciliation is very difficult. That's the first seed of reconciliation. Here's a second seed of reconciliation. It's forgiveness from the offended. And the problem here. I hear this, you're probably wondering, Joseph doesn't seem all that ready to forgive his brothers. I mean, he, pre he pretends to be a stranger, he speaks them harshly, he throws them in prison. And you're like, that, that sounds to me like he's getting his, his payback. It sounds to me like he's getting revenge. But consider this for a moment, read more closely. I would suggest to you that underneath the toughness is a tenderness. Verse 24, he turns away from the brothers and he begins to weep. His actions are tempered by mercy. He first throws all the brothers in prison. But then he decides to just hold one of them so the rest of them can bring food back to their families. Otherwise, they're going to starve if he keeps them all in prison. You see, if Joseph wanted to take revenge, you know, he probably would have revealed himself immediately when his brothers came. Like, do you know who I am? I'm Joseph. Surprise. This is payback time. I mean, that's what he would have done. He would have kept all the brothers in prison. He would have like, you know, you came for food. Well, you're going to go home hungry and tell them like what you did. That's why you're not getting any food. Joseph wanted to take revenge. He could have. See, forgiveness is canceling a debt that someone owes you. Forgiveness is not seeking revenge. It's not payback. And evidence that Joseph is moving towards this is what he names his sons. He names his sons Ephraim. God has made me forget what happened. And Manasseh, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. See, Joseph says, God has made me forget. He, of course he remembers what his brothers did to him. But he forgets in the sense that he's no longer, it doesn't have a hold on him. It's not making him bitter. He, he's let go of this offense. How? He, because he says, God has made me spiritually wealthy in this land. See, when God makes you spiritually wealthy, it enables you to be very forgiving. See, think of it this way. If, you, if all you own in this world is $20, then forgiving a debt of $10 is hard because that's like half of what you own. But if you have $20 million, 
and you have a debt of $10? Like, no, no problem. That's a mere pittance. You see, when God makes Joseph spiritually wealthy, he says, I know what you did was wrong to me, but, but I've thrived here. God has blessed me. And I, so I'm not going to hold what you did against you. And so, so then here's the question. If Joseph is ready to forgive his brothers, what explains this, this somewhat odd behavior? I mean, like, why so stern? Why accuse them of being spies? Why throw them into prison? Why keep Simeon? Why put their silver back in their sacks? What's he doing? I suggest to you that what, what he's doing, Joseph is testing his brothers. You see, it's one thing to forgive someone. It's another step to reconcile with them. So you may forgive an abuser, but you're not going to go back into the relationship unless you know that the abuser has changed. And it's genuine repentance that ought to lead to change. And so Joseph is testing his brother's repentance. He's testing to see that if his brothers have truly changed before he entrusts himself to them, he wants to know if they're trustworthy. So he charges them of being spies. And when they say, no, we're honest men, I'm sure Joseph had to bite his tongue. But he charges them of being spies and he finds out information that he needs to know that his father's still alive. He finds out about the welfare of his youngest brother, Benjamin. When he keeps Simeon and returns their silver to them, you know what he's doing? He's recreating the exact same situation when they sold Joseph off for silver years ago, when they valued money more than their own brother. Joseph is recreating that situation. He's, he's keeping Simeon and giving back their silver to see if they say, well, this is great. We have all this food and our money back. Forget Simeon. We don't need him anymore. Or have they changed? And will they be loyal to their brother Simeon? Derek Kidner describes Joseph's testing here. He says, just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of quite new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. So if you want to you know, break a, a dish, take it straight out of the oven and put it in the freezer. You know, that, that change will break the dish. And Joseph is doing something like that in his alternating truth and love to break open his, his, his brother's heart. So you see, sun and frost, that's, that's Joseph's strategy to see if his brothers have truly changed. Here are the seeds of reconciliation. A repentance that leads to change on the part of the offender and a forgiveness on the part of the offended. And the question is, where does it come from? Where do you have the resources to do this? There is a deeper reconciliation which we must experience that Joseph's brothers recognize. They recognize that their sin ultimately is against God and they need to reconcile to him. See, if God wanted to make, to pay back the, the brothers for their sins, he would have just left them in, in Canaan to die of, of starvation. But he doesn't. In his mercy, he's working to save them by sending their brother Joseph ahead of them to suffer humiliation in Egypt on their behalf in order to save them. Suffering of the one for the saving of the many. In the same way, if God wanted to condemn us in our sins, he certainly could. But in his mercy, he is already working to save us and to redeem us. He sends our true brother Jesus Christ, the one better than Joseph, ahead of us, to suffer humiliation on a cross to save us from our sins. The suffering of the one for the saving of the many. 
And unlike Joseph, Jesus doesn't wait for the right circumstances to appear, to appear before he reconciles with us. No, while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against him, while we were still shaking our fists against him, Jesus came and died on a cross on our behalf. God was pursuing reconciliation with us while we were still his enemies. He was moving towards us in kindness and grace. And my friends, when you realize that the, the cost and initiative of that kind of redemption and reconciliation from God our Father and our older brother Jesus Christ, that gives us motivation and a deep resource to forgive and reconcile with others. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian in the Netherlands whose family hid Jews and helped them escape from the Nazis in World War II. Corrie and her sister Betsy were caught and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy died, but Corrie survived. In 1947, after the war, Corrie had a ministry speaking around about her experience. She was in Germany on a speaking tour where she was telling people about the gospel. And at one of the meetings, she said to the audience that through Jesus Christ, God has thrown our sins into the bottom of the seas. And at the end of the meeting, as the people were leaving, she saw a man walking toward her whom she recognized instantly. In her words, this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are. I remember the leather crop swinging from his belt, and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Because, of course, he didn't recognize Corey as having been one of his prisoners. He was simply asking a Dutch woman for confirmation that the sins of a concentration camp guard could be forgiven. It's the first time she had met any of her former captors. And so, she said, the woman who had just given a speech about God's forgiveness kept her hand in her pocket. He proceeded to tell her that he had been a guard at Ravensbrook and that he had turned to Christ and had sought forgiveness for all the cruel things I did there. That did not help Corey. She said, I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? She stood there, his hand thrust out, her hand unmoving. But Corey remembered what she knew about Christian forgiveness. She knew she had to do it. She had seen many people post-World War II who could not and who had, through their bitterness, remained invalids. She also knew that forgiveness is not an emotion but an act of the will. Silently, she prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so woodenly, mechanically, she says, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And she says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. My friends, reconciliation is, of course, not always this instantaneous. Sometimes it takes years. 
as Joseph's life with his brothers shows us. It took years. But there is a God who is working to lead us on the road of reconciliation. And so I ask you this morning, I ask us, is God showing you the need for reconciliation with someone in your life? Would you consider praying that God would bring an opportunity your way to pursue reconciliation? And would you consider how God has reconciled with us in Jesus Christ? The initiative and sacrifice that he took to reconcile us to him, to give you the resources and motivation to sow the seeds, even now, of reconciliation. That is genuine repentance from sin and forgiveness of grace extended when it's requested. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is writing a story in our lives. Thank you that you are a God who highly values redemption and reconciliation. And you lead us on the road to yourself first. That we might be redeemed and reconciled to you first. And then to those around us. Lord, we are built for community, and we lament the community we've lost, the broken relationships, and we ask that you would lead us on the road to reconciliation. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.